Well, this morning is sort of a part two to, uh, I was so captivated by that singing, I forgot to log into my tablet, sorry. Uh, so tomorrow, today is a part two to the gospel message that we did last week. Last week we uh, focused on 13 things that the gospel was, and of course there's 1,300 things that the gospel is, um, but um, today what I wanted to do was step down to sort of the practical. How does the gospel apply? And so last week was about the gospel. This is about how the gospel is applied. And uh, quite often, if we say that the gospel is everything or we say that the gospel is the center, um, we wonder how that applies to different areas of our life. And so I can get up here and I can say, well, apply the gospel to your parenting or apply the gospel to your relationships or apply your gospel, the gospel at work. And you think, okay, isn't the gospel like, John 3.16? Like, isn't it that Christ came and died uh, because God loved us? Like, isn't, isn't that the gospel? How does that apply to work? And uh, so that's what today is about, is, is to just connect some dots between our everyday Christian life and how the gospel informs our Christian life. And our, the gospel teaches us how to live every part of our Christian life. You can, you can connect the dots. You can draw a line back from anything that's going on in your life back to the gospel and what the gospel is and the fullness of the gospel. And the gospel will explain or inform or shed light on how to live your life uh, in that particular area. And uh, God wants the gospel to be life-living practical. Like I said last last week, the gospel is not just something that you pray a prayer at camp or when you're a, a kid and then that you kind of get to heaven and that's it. And then the gospel doesn't do anything else for the rest of your life. The gospel, God intends it to be life-living practical. Uh, Paul says to his young believers in Philippians, he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul was living out the gospel and he says, it's, it's practical. Look at me and, and conduct yourselves that way. Or in Galatians, he says, he actually rebukes Peter for conduct that was not in line with the truth of the gospel. So, so Paul looks at Peter, how he's behaving, and he's saying, you are not behaving according to the truth of the gospel. So the gospel has to be something practical in behavior. And then in Philippians 1, Paul urges believers to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Right? So, so, so the gospel is meant to be practical. It's meant to be lived out in our lives. And I, I love Ephesians 4, where Paul says, don't be like the Gentiles. And he has this amazing phrase. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. It's the only time he uses that phrase. But it's incredible. We Remember, the gospel is Christocentric, right? Christ is the gospel. And Paul is saying, live your life in the truth of the gospel. And then he says to the Ephesians, he says, you learned Christ. So Christ, the person of Christ, is something that we learn, someone that we learn. There's teaching in who Christ is. It's the gospel. It's Christ. And Paul explains what it is to the Ephesians right after that in 21. He says, put off your old self, which belonged to your former manner of life and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So all of that is just to say, I'm not just making this up. Okay. The scripture says that the gospel is supposed to be practical. The gospel is something we learn. Christ is someone we learn. And in learning the gospel, in learning Christ, we apply it to the manner of our living. It's meant to function by teaching and informing specific behaviors. And so we should always be reading our Bible with an eye towards understanding how the gospel or how Christ links to how we conduct our new life. Okay, so the gospel is not just this esoteric thing that's out there. It is involved in your parenting. It's involved in your work. It's involved in your marriage. 
It's involved in your relationships. The gospel is meant to inform all of that. So how do we live a gospel-centric life then? How do we as Christians say our life is centered on the gospel and I'm applying the gospel to my life? And that's what this message is about. And I'll try to be fairly quick about it and not get wound up like I did last week and go long. But um, I just want to I just want to connect some dots about common things in our life and how the gospel informs them. And I'm not going to do all the work for you. You're going to have to go home and do some of the work to start to think this way. Start to think as a gospel centered Christian that the gospel is really at the heart of everything. Now, one way of thinking of this is that we need the gospel to reorient our hearts. And so as Christians, we're constantly letting the gospel reorient our hearts. And that's kind of one way that we can view this. And the reason we need the gospel to reorient our heart is that before the gospel came along, we were indoctrinated, as Don Williman says, we're indoctrinated by our culture to think of ourselves as autonomous, sacred selves before anything else. We are encouraged into a sort of radical narcissism. Okay, so that's our hearts before the gospel comes. We just think about ourselves. We are the sacred self. Everything is about us. We are fundamentally narcissistic in the way that we treat the world. We want to get ahead. We want to be cared for ourselves. We want things for ourselves. And the gospel has to come along and reorient that sacred self heart. And in the 70s and 80s, I think we called it the me generation, right? And it's only gotten worse. You know, selfies and Twitter followers and upvotes and Instagram likes, right? It's all about the sacred self and the attention on us. But that heart that we are born with has to be reoriented. And so you can think of this as the gospel reorienting our hearts. Because Christian behavior is not meant to flow out of serving our sacred selves. Jesus says plainly, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Right right in Jesus' word, he says there's self-denial here. He says, I know you have that narcissistic heart. And if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself. That's the starting point. And then take up your cross and follow me. So our ultimate happiness is never achieved until this self-addictive principle is banished from us. And the gospel does that. So if the gospel is meant to be practical, if the gospel is meant to reorient our heart, if the gospel is meant to change our behavior and inform our behavior, how does it do that? Well, the first thing I'm going to look at is the gospel and identity. Our identity, and this is a huge thing in our culture today, this whole identity issue, whether it's gender identity, personhood identity, uh, racial identity, there's just identity issues are rampant in our culture. This is the new God of our culture is our identity. And the gospel has a great deal to say about our, our identity, and it can work itself out in many different ways. In the gospel, we have a new family. So our identity is not necessarily most closely allied with our physical family now, our our earthly family, we're given a new family, we're adopted into a new family. Or we're citizens of a new kingdom, the gospel says. We're no longer slaves but heirs. We're adopted by God. We're a kingdom of priests. These are all identity statements out of Scripture that are brand new to us who have received the gospel. Because of what Jesus did, our identity has changed. And so the gospel has something to say about identity. If we're struggling with identity issues in our life, the gospel has something to say about it. And it starts most fundamentally with who we are. As Tim Keller often phrases it, the gospel says, I am more sinful than I ever feared, but I am more loved than I ever dreamed. That's our new identity. Our new identity understanding under the gospel is that we are more sinful than we ever feared, but we are more loved than we ever dreamed. And that's the beginning point of the sort of the light bulb moment of the gospel. And it's about our true identity. And so it's possible to say, 
to that person under the influence of the gospel that they have a radically accurate view of themselves because they have a radically accurate view of God. So as we get a new view of ourselves and God, we get a new view of our identity. But that's still very kind of 30,000 foot, right? How does that play out in common situations? Well, just one example. If we believe that we can find our own worth and our meaning through performance, which is how a lot of people try to find their identity and try to find their worth and meaning, it's in performance or in success, then we will become either proud and disdainful of others if we reach our goals, or else we will become discouraged and self-loathing if we fail at our goals. Okay, so if your approach to your identity is, I'm good when I succeed, then you are either going to become proud when you do, or you're going to become depressed when you don't. But the gospel comes along and creates an entirely new self-image that is not based on success. It's not based on performance. The gospel says it's not about how hard you work. It's about who loves you and God loves you. It's about your identity in Christ Jesus. So the gospel actually informs our understanding of our identity. Or another example, over and over again in the Psalms, the scripture shows us sort of a profile of a person who has this unusual combination of both heartfelt despair but steady confidence. You see that all the time in the Psalms. Right, This person, as they write the Psalms, is clearly despairing, but they also have this steady confidence. And it's an unusual com- combination. But that points us towards a cross-centered life. At the cross, we find that our identity, our self, is on one hand destroyed in our sinfulness, and on the other hand, we find that our identity is released from sin and given a new life and reborn as a child of God. And so when you think of the gospel, you realize the gospel is fundamentally changing your identity. It changes who we are in Christ. And it's one of the easiest word studies you can do in the New Testament. And it's worth your time to do. And that's the homework on identity that I'm going to leave you with. I've talked about it at sort of a high level. But I'll leave you with that homework. If you want to do a word study, just look for the list of things that we are in Christ. In Christ, in quotes, appears 90 times in the New Testament between Acts and 1 Peter. 90 times we are told who we are in Christ and what our new identity is. And there is a, there's just a wealth of, of, of hope there for you if you're struggling with identity issues. We have a new identity according to the gospel. The second thing, very practically, that the gospel does, and they're going to keep getting more practical as I go, starting a little higher and moving down, is that it gives us a new purpose. The gospel changes the purpose of our lives. When we were eight or ten, perhaps we wanted to be firefighters or doctors. I don't know what you wanted to be when you were a kid, right? Um, you know, maybe a ninja or a pirate, um, you know, I don't know, an astronaut, right? But at some point, we started to establish a purpose in our life, right? Some of us stuck with doctor or pilot. We kind of had that purpose, that vision, that goal for our life. We want to be a doctor or a pilot. And we grew up and like, yep, you know, went to pilot school, you know, went to, uh, went to medical school, became a doctor or a pirate. Some of us are still hoping for ninja, right? Like, I don't know, you know, just hanging in there. Like, maybe someday I'm going to be... I'm going to get accepted by that ninja, you know, group and I'm going to be a ninja or maybe pirate. I don't know. But uh, but at some point later on in our life, in our teen years, we have to find a purpose. Right. And and apart from the gospel, we kind of put our purpose in those career type things or those family type things. And that's fine. But when the gospel comes along, then 
the gospel changes our purpose. The gospel informs and amplifies a person's purpose. It's not that you're not going to be a doctor or not be a pilot or not be a ninja. It's the fact that you are going to be that for the gospel, not for the money, not for the challenge, not for self-fulfillment, not to please your parents, you know, not for whatever motive drove you before to do it. You're going to have a purpose now that is informed by and illuminated by the gospel. And when we accept the gospel and we follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're given a new life now and access to heaven and eternity with God forever. And, and, it, and it changes our purpose now. We have an eternal purpose. If we listen carefully to how Jesus proclaims the, doc, the gospel, it, it sounds like this. Jesus proclaims the gospel kind of this way. Don't fear. The kingdom of God has come among you. Follow me. Do what I teach you so that you can live within this new kingdom now and be part of expanding the reign of God in his world. If you read Mark or Matthew or Luke um, or any of the gospels, Jesus presents the gospel as becoming part of a bigger kingdom purpose. The gospel changes why we do what we do in the world and we have a new purpose. So Paul says, live out your kingdom life now. Once the gospel has come in and illuminated your life, you now have a new purpose and you live out that kingdom life now with that purpose in mind where you are. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, he says, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. What does all that mean? It just means that it's great that you want to be a doctor. It's great that you want to be a pilot. It's great that you want to do whatever it is that you're doing, being a lawyer or um, construction worker or teacher, whatever it is that you do, that purpose is good. But when the gospel comes along, it now gives you new purpose. You now have a kingdom purpose. You stay in the place where you're called, but you're now doing it for different reasons and different motives. And so the gospel informs our identity. The gospel now informs our purpose as well. Let's get even more practical. Let's get down to relationships. The gospel informs our relationships, how we think, how we speak, how we act towards others, right? And I cheated here a little bit. I put five subpoints under this third point. So, you know, it was only going to be an eight-point sermon, but it's probably 13 again. Um, the gospel, and I want to go deeper here than just how the gospel informs things like forgiveness, right? We we, we know that gospel informs our relationships with others in terms of our need to forgive, in terms of our need to show compassion, in terms of, of not judging people and being loving and not taking vengeance. All of those things are rooted in gospel reality. And, 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 and I think you know, most of you know most of those things and could connect the dots between the gospel and forgiveness, could, could connect the dots between the gospel and love and not judging and, and, and not taking vengeance and all of those things. But let's talk about relationships on a more practical level. Let's talk about what, how does the gospel inform things like unmarried sex, right? So when Paul appears to the Corinthians and he says, flee from sexual immorality, the Apostle Paul actually bases that behavior explicitly on the gospel. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says. And so this is a gospel reason for sexual purity. You see how the dots connect for Paul. He says, there is a gospel reality that you are not your own. You were bought with a price and therefore honor God with your body. And so how you live your sex life actually is connected to the gospel. Or let's get practical in marriage. When Paul tells husbands to love their wives, he does so by linking his exhortation directly to the gospel in Ephesians 22:25, He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, the gospel is not this thing that we leave behind. Paul is saying, 
the gospel informs how you live your life before marriage. The gospel informs how you live your life in marriage. How you actually live is actually connected to the gospel. Or you could move on to parenting, right? In addition to the fact that our relationship with our children has to be filled with all the grace and mercy and love of the gospel, which I'm sure that you know, we should also allow the gospel to our form, inform our parenting at even a deeper level. So, so let, let me make this connection. Let me connect this dot. Children are all born little legalists, right? You know this, right? They're all born, they come out of the womb little legalists. And everything has to be fair and they have to follow the rules. And, and we actually have to be legalists with them because children need the law in order to provide boundaries around safety and behavior and, you know, to grow up to be good citizens in our nation. And so, you know, for the first seven or eight years of their life, probably even maybe nine years, and if they're boys, maybe 12 years, um, they need the law to create boundaries for them. And as they age, you'll notice that children and we actually go through kind of the stages of the nation of Israel, right? We're born under the law and we have the law of Sinai that basically puts boundaries on our behavior because we don't know better. But then the law of Sinai has to be replaced with the law of Christ. And so as we're parenting, parenting is actually this process of leading people, our little people from legalism into grace and into the law of Christ. We have to learn to parent in such a way that they see the goodness that lies behind the law. And this is and this is how it works. When the gospel comes into our life, we no longer see the law as a burden, but we see the law as a delight. We see the law as a way that we please the God who has saved us. And we have to do that with our children. And so there's even a gospel connection to how we parent because we are leading our, our kids from law into grace. We're leading them from the law that provides boundaries into the law of Christ that says, the reason that we act the way that we do is because of the good news of the gospel. Or at work, the gospel changes how we treat people, how we motivate people, how we accept criticism. All of these things are changed under the gospel. Paul says that both servant and master treat each other with a new kind of respect, not because of who each other is, but because of what Christ has done. He says in Ephesians 6, you could go here and look a lot about this in terms of of masters and servants or employees and bosses. Obey as you would obey Christ and treat your servants in the same way. So you see, Paul says we don't act this way because of who we are. We act this way and treat each other differently because of what Christ has done and who we are in Christ. And so how we engage people at work, how we accept criticism, how we speak to people is all affected by the gospel. And then just everyone. The gospel takes precedent in our interactions with others. We're set free to engage with people without fear because we're more concerned with what the gospel has to say than what others have to say. And I'll, again, I'll just try and connect the dots here and, and give you a really practical example of how you live gospel-centrically in this way in relationships with, with everybody. The gospel comes along in your life and all of a sudden the gospel allows both criticism and compliments to land on us with less effect. Prior to the gospel coming along, criticism could land on us and destroy us. We could be destroyed by what we thought other people felt about us before the gospel came along. But when the gospel comes along, criticism no longer destroy us. And on the other hand, compliments no longer inflate us because we know by the gospel that we are worse sinners than we dared imagine. And we also know that we are saved by grace through faith and not works and we're more loved than we ever dared hope. And so that no one can boast, it says in Ephesians 2. And so, so even a little thing like that, just how criticism and compliments land on us is informed by the gospel. 
So as Christians, the gospel teaches us something about ourselves that changes how we engage with people. We're more influenced by the gospel truth than by cultural error. I'll give you another example. It brings down racial barriers by eliminating the way either racial pride or racial inferiority affects us. And it brings down class barriers in the same way. And we can see this spelled out by Paul clearly in Galatians. If you go back, we talked about this in more detail in our Galatians series last year. But we see this with the with the disciple Peter and the apostle Paul in Galatians. Paul explicitly links the behavior of Peter as he eats only with the Jews and rejects the Gentiles as being out of step with the gospel. So Paul says, Peter, the way you are behaving right now when you only eat with the Jews and you won't sit and eat with your Gentile brothers in Christ, he says, this is not just a law thing. This is a gospel thing. You are doing harm to the gospel truth. He says in Galatians 2.14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all. It says Cephas there, but it's Peter. Same name. So all, I, all I'm trying to show you here is just that there are these connections between the gospel and how we practically live out our life. The fact that the gospel is true therefore means a whole bunch of new things in our life. And as Christians, it's our job and it's important and it's meaningful and productive for us as Christians as you go through your life to be linking everything that we're doing, everything that's changing about us back to the gospel, right? Because we don't just say with our words that Christianity is gospel-centric or that it's Christ-centered or that the gospel is the center of our faith or Christ is the center of our faith. Those aren't just empty words. They're actually fundamentally true. What Christ has done and what the gospel says about who we are changes every aspect of our lives. It changes our sex life. It changes our marriage life. It changes how we receive criticism. It changes how we compliment people. It changes everything about us. It changes how we view different races. It changes how we do, how we view different classes. Everything about the gospel informs every part of our life. Another, just one more example of how the gospel informs our interactions with others. We're more concerned with gospel purpose than we are selfish desires. So in other words, now that the gospel has come along and given us a new purpose in our life and we have the hope and are ready to give an account for the hope that is within us, now when we engage with other people, we're not engaging with other people with this sort of, what am I going to get out of you and you're going to get out of me and as long as we have a good social contract and we're both winning, then we'll have a good relationship. But as soon as that relationship starts to become one-sided, then I'm out of here. Right. And there's a before the gospel came along, that was a lot of our relationships. Right. You know, I'm not getting what I need out of this relationship. So I'm done with it. This is a social contract that has to be equal. But because the gospel has come along and we now have a gospel purpose in our relationship, we're not engaging with people because of what we can get out of them. But we're engaging with people to serve them. And so we can ask ourselves, does the gospel inform our relationship such that as the gospel has brought life and light and truth and joy and satisfaction and peace to us, is then that same light and truth and joy and peace and satisfaction coming out of us to others? Are we engaged with other people to speak life and light and truth into their lives? Because the gospel says that's what our relationships are for. Or are our relationships accusation and rebuke and, you know, what can I get out of it? And, you know, you're dragging me down, so I'm going to leave you behind. In other words, are we building up or are we destroying? And so the gospel fundamentally changes the platform on which we engage with others. Do we see relationships as means to lead people to the gospel if they don't know it? Or if they already are recipients of the gospel, if they are brothers and sisters in Christ, do we see relationships as opportunities to build them up in the gospel if they're struggling? 
And there's a lot more there. The gospel informs so many parts of our relationships and our involvement with each other that we could go on and on there. But I just, again, connecting dots here, very practical sermon today to show you that the gospel and what Jesus has done actually informs and sheds light on how we behave. It reorients our heart. It says you used to have a heart that treated people this way. The gospel now comes along and reorients our heart and says we need to behave this way. Okay, another part of our life that's huge, money and stuff. How does the gospel inform our relationship with money and things in the world? In Luke 12, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay, so I understand what Jesus is saying there, that my life can't all be about you know, possessions and having a wealth of them. But how is that connected to the gospel? How is it connected to the work of Christ? Well, again, we can look to Paul and see how Paul takes a gospel truth and connects it to a practical reality. When Paul calls the Corinthians to an ongoing generosity, he explicitly reminds them of God's generosity in the gospel. So in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says to them, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Paul says... Okay, this is the attitude you're to have towards money. This is how the gospel informs your level of generosity. This is how the gospel reorients your heart in the area of generosity. It says, just as Christ became poor so that we could become rich, so we impoverish ourselves so that others might become rich. We give to others. Or in 2 Corinthians 9, he carries on the same thing. He says, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saint, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution to them and for all others. And so Paul is basically saying the gospel is going forth. People are being saved. There's fruit for the gospel because you have contributed, because of your generosity, because of your confession of the gospel of Christ, because you've allowed your heart to be reoriented by what Christ has done for you. That has allowed this generosity to go forth in this mission purpose that Paul has and that they are benefiting. They are benefiting from this ministry. And so we see here that our attitude towards money and possessions is informed by the gospel act of Christ. Generosity comes from knowing that Christ is what Christ has already done for us. And so as the gospel reorients our heart, it, it reorients our use of money. And so with the plans that we had for our retirement or the plans that we had for our money before we came to Christ, And the way that we used our money and the way that we used stuff before we came to Christ looks very different after we come to Christ because the gospel comes along, it gets inserted into our life, it reorients our heart, and we suddenly say, oh, I'm not going to use money the same way I did. I'm not going to crave things the same way I did. The way I practically use money is now informed. It's increase in generosity, as Paul says here, but it's also put to a different purpose. Our, Our money is now used for gospel purposes. It releases our grip on stuff. The gospel says we can hold lightly to these things because God has done so much more. It aligns the use of our money with the mission of the gospel. And we're using it to build God's kingdom and not just our own kingdom. Like Jesus said in the parable of the rich man in the barns that we did about four weeks ago, right? He's not saying it's wrong to be rich, but woe to the man who is rich and not also rich towards God, right? We're to be rich towards God. So money and gospel reorients our money and our stuff. What about illness and death? Here's another 
key area of our life that the gospel comes in and informed illness, death, and dying. Well, I don't need to spend a whole lot of time here because I think this application is pretty well understood. Right? We understand that the gospel now changes our view on this life. We understand that this life is leading to the next. We understand that there's hope and redemption. We understand that there's total healing that is coming. We understand that death is not something to fear, but God has taken something fearful and turned it something that's into a doorway to something glorious. And so as we go through our life and we struggle in illness and fear of that, of, of what is to come, the gospel comes along and reorients our heart and it very practically changes the way we view those things. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Right? The gospel changes our whole outlook on that. And that doesn't mean that we're not afraid. It doesn't mean that we don't have fear. We're still physical people. We still have physiological responses to illness. But the gospel reinforms, it reorients our heart on those things. And all of those things become considered in light of eternity. We consider all of our relationships. We consider all of our possessions. We consider all of our activities in the light of eternity. Sixthly, the gospel has something to say about our fear and anxiety. This is a big part of just the human condition, right? Just by being human, we have fear and anxiety, right? We're, we're worried about whatever the future has to hold, or we're worried about people that we care about. We have fear and anxiety. This is a big one, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I think many of us have a good understanding of how fear and anxiety fall under the domain of Christ. But I think it's important that we make the link to the gospel clear as well. And this is, this is the gospel link that I want to make for you in terms of fear and anxiety, and it kind of ties into identity. A lot of these things tie together. It's this, that at the cross, God proved his love for us. And so the gospel says that the question of whether God loves you or not was already settled 2,000 years ago. There is no question anymore about whether God loves you. And so when it comes to fear and anxiety, we, we root our hope in that reality that we are loved by God. Okay? And so the good news of the cross is that we are loved. If God would die for us, if God would send His own Son to go to the cross for us, then would he let us experience anything that is not for our ultimate good? No. We are more sinful than we ever dared imagine, and we also know that we're more loved than we ever dared hope. And the cross proves that. Or as Paul would say in Romans 9, therefore if God is for us, who can be against us? Right. So this is the gospel connection to fear and anxiety. You can connect any fear that you have, any worry you have, directly to the cross of Christ. Because you can just say to yourself, self God loves me. His love for me was proven at the cross. If he would die for me, then why would he not care for all these other little things? And anything he's allowing in my life, I trust that it is for my ultimate good, as Paul talks about in Romans, right? He says that God intends everything for good and turns everything for good for those who love him. And so we know that we can deal with the root starting of our fear and anxiety. Apart from all the other scriptures where Jesus talks about fear and worry and where Paul and Peter and John talk about fear and worry, apart from all those other scriptures, just in the gospel you can root your hope in the fact that God loves you and he's proven it at the cross. We already know that the gospel speaks clearly that the question of God's love is settled and that he is for you, he is not against you. And that doesn't mean that we never experience fear or stress. Right? We're still physical beings with physical responses, but fear and anxiety no longer need to control us because we know that God is working to our good. Seventh, 
desires and affections. How does the gospel affect or have inform or shed light on our desires and affections? By replacing old affections with better ones. We're born into our flesh with desires and affections that are broken and misplaced. Right? They're ultimately focused on self, and this is closely linked with our identity. Because we think of ourselves as autonomous sacred selves, our desires and affections are aimed at all things that ultimately glorify us. I mean, we're selfless here and there with people that we love because they're lovable. And if they're lovable people and we love them, then sometimes we'll do something selfless for them or if they're family. But as soon as someone is not lovable or as soon as there's someone that's not connected to us, then our generosity and our selflessness goes by the wayside quite quickly. But apart from that, the things that we do For ourselves, we love ourselves. We make sure that we're cared for. Paul phrases it in Philippians this way. For people that are like that, that are have those selfish desires, he says their end is destruction and their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. So this is about desires. This is about self-satisfaction. Their God is their belly. Paul is talking literally about appetites. And it's how Paul describes our misplaced appetites or our misplaced affections. And then he goes on to say, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says your appetites, your desires, your affections are actually very practically, they are very applicably affected by the gospel. Because our citizenship is in heaven, And because we await for a Savior, and because we await for the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, we're no longer part of this world. And so the things, the appetites, the desires, the pleasures of this world will pale in comparison to what we truly desire, to what we truly hope for. When the gospel comes into our life, God does not say, you have to give up all of your pleasure and all of your joy and all of your fulfillment and lead a miserable, ascetic life of a monk. Right? God doesn't say that. God says, when the gospel comes, rather... I will transform your affections. I will transform your delights. I will transform your appetites. Your delight will be in far greater pleasures. The word of God will become like honeycomb. Christ becomes glorious. Worship becomes a blessing. Generosity and service become joy. The gospel changes our affections because we see Jesus as our most precious treasure. And so very practically in your life, when the gospel comes along, it should be informing. It should be reorienting your heart in your delights and in your appetites and in your pleasures. You no longer take delight in those old things. And we talked about some of them already. Might be money, might be possessions, might be power, might be career, might be purpose, might be whatever. But those old pleasures and those old delights begin to pale and we take pleasure in a new thing and we treasure Jesus above everything else. And this is not a step down. This is a step up. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so God wants to replace your pleasures and your appetites and your desires with greater things. And so whatever things in this world are captivating your attention, God says there's a greater thing that captures your attention and it's the gospel, it's the cross of Christ, it's what Christ has done for you. And then finally, sin. Very practically, the gospel deals with our sin. None of this teaching, and this is what I want to get to today, none of this teaching means anything. The gospel doesn't have any special power unless it actually deals with our sin. Everything I just talked about, you know, allowing the gospel to inform our generosity or allowing it to change our purpose in life or to have a different outlook and treat people better, 
You know, if we understand people as being different and being worthy and being valued as people created in the image of God, and so, you know, we're not going to swear or we're not going to treat them poorly or, you know, we're not going to um, um, criticize them. Like, we can change our behavior out of all of these things that the gospel is informing us about. But understand this, if that's all the gospel is, then all it is is another religion. All it is is another religious ethic. It's just another list of rules that says you should treat people nicely or you should be more selfless, you know, or you should view things in the world differently. You should or reorient your priorities. There's lots of religions out there that will tell you lots of good things to do, to love your neighbor, to reorient your, your priorities, to care about community more than things. You know, there's religious ethics out there that will tell you those things. And if all the gospel was was those things that I listed, then then Christianity would just be another religion. It would just be another religious ethic. But the gospel fundamentally transforms us, not because it simply teaches us things. Jesus Christ was not just a wise teacher. Christianity in the New Testament and the things that Paul teaches are not just good ideas. The gospel is practical and applied and transformative because it actually deals with our sin and changes our nature. It changes our heart. The gospel does simply more than inform how we should live. And so I want you to see that today, that this just goes beyond looking at the Bible and saying, there's a good idea, I should apply that in my life. You won't be able to do it because our sin nature would still be there except for the fact that the gospel has fundamentally changed who we are. The greatest news of the gospel is first and foremost, as I've stated before, we're more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the same time. And so I've preached this message in some ways in reverse. I've, I've put the starting point at the end. The gospel is ultimately only effective in our parenting and in our marriage and in understanding how to orient our identity and in understanding how to treat people and how to engage and receive compliments and to receive criticism that, and with our money. The gospel is informative and effective in that way only if we start with it diverting the wrath of God and breaking our bondage to sin. If we don't start there, then all the rest of it is just another religion. But the gospel is not just another religion. It's not just another religious ethic. It's not just a good way to live your life on earth. The gospel is the fact that God has set us free from our old flesh and the bondage of sin. It's not just a better worldview. The gospel is, as Paul says of it in Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And once that has happened, once the gospel has taken root in your life and you've been set free by what Christ has done on the cross and putting your hope and your trust in him, once that has happened, then all these other effects of the gospel begin to take place. And it's noticeable. As I've been talking here today, we've been talking about like noticeable practical changes in your life and how you do things. And when I was out, I was actually out for breakfast this week, and uh, somebody was talking to me there as we were sitting there in the cozy, and, and they just passed on a little nugget of information, and I'll obscure the details so that we don't descend on any one place or person or anything like that. But they said there was a place of business in, in Halliburton, and they were talking to the person who runs that business, and they said, you know, they said, oh, you're from Lakeside, yeah. And they said, you know, I've noticed the people from Lakeside are different than my other customers. And and the other, and the person who heard that said, well, that's good. And when I heard that, I thought, well, that's good. Right? And it's good to hear that. This person's not a churchgoer. They don't have anything to do with religion. They don't have anything to do with the church. They don't even, they don't even necessarily know why we're different. But I just want you to know that the practical effect of the gospel in your life is actually noticeable. 
Okay, when you go out there and you are engaging in the community, there are shop owners, there are people who are packing your groceries, there are people that you are working with. And when the God, when you're living a gospel-centered Christian life, the, the effect is noticeable to the point that they, that you actually get people saying things like that. They say, you know what, I have people come in here all the time, but I've noticed the people from Lakeside are different. Well, that's a great testimony. That is how the gospel is supposed to transform our lives. And so you're doing a good job when we hear feedback like that from the community. So it just shows that the gospel really is at work. It shows that the gospel comes with power to transform us. The gospel doesn't say transform your life to be found worthy of Christ. The gospel says Christ has transformed you by the gospel, so go now and live out your new life. Now, this is a really big survey. This is a really fast survey. All I wanted to do today was really to show you the connecting points between the gospel and very practical areas of your life. And I don't know where you need to apply it. I don't know whether it's in marriage or relationships or money or work or you know parenting or whatever. I just want you to know that when we say that Christianity is gospel-centered, when we say the Christian life is gospel-centered, it's not just words. It's real. What Christ has done on the cross and how he has transformed us and what we learn from the gospel informs every part of our life. And so go out from here and live that gospel-centered life because it's noticeable. People see the change in your life. And it's for his kingdom. Let's pray.